0: let get on. Greetings Reggae Uprising podcast family and welcome to another episode. Now if you are fresh and new to Reggae Uprising podcast, it is all about connecting people of the African diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspirational stories all backed by a soundtrack of sweet reggae music. So what usually happens is each and every Wednesday we feature a new guest who shares their wisdom, their journey and their stories along the way. With seven reggae selections. However, all throughout April, we've been doing something a little bit different as we have our special series, our Black Panther series. We have already featured Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale and last week, Fred Hampton. If you want to make sure you are always the first to hear fresh new Reggae Uprising podcast episodes, please subscribe wherever you're listening to Reggae Uprising podcast. Alternatively, you can also find all of our episodes via my website, daniel.co.uk, which is D-A-N-I-E-A-L. .co.uk. You can also find all of my social media there as well, and you can also subscribe there. Because as well as having all Reggae Uprising podcast episodes, I also have my own original music. So as well as being the host of Reggae Uprising podcast, I'm also a singer-songwriter of Conscious Soul Reggae music. So you can check out all of my music videos, my music, and you can find out my latest performance dates there as well. So if this is the first time you're here in this Black Panther series, after you've checked out this episode, you really do want to check out those three previous episodes that I spoke about. Um, So each week, what we've done is featured on a different brother or sister and shone a spotlight on their words. So it's not really about me telling you who these people were, telling you their life stories. It's sharing their words. So we've been sharing different interviews And also in last week's episode, we actually shared a couple of news excerpts as well. All of the excerpts featured in this series are credited. So you can find all of the accreditations in the description. So if you want to go and support them, if you want to go search them out on YouTube, you can find all of the works featured in every single episode, including the music, of course. Now, before we get into the music, this week's episode, our final episode as part of the Black Panther series is Angela Davis. All of our previous spotlights have been shone on the brothers. So we had to feature a sister, of course. And like I said, this week is Angela Davis. But before we hear her words, so the, the out of the excerpts, The first excerpt you're going to hear is from 1972 and then the excerpts that follow afterwards are later in her life. But before we get into hearing her words, we are first going to hear the high vibrations of Bob Marley.
1: whatever
2: Well, uh, we're going to wrap a little while about a number of things, but uh, I guess one of the most important things that we can start off talking about is the fact that uh, you have been called uh, a revolutionary, a militant, uh, uh, much of the media has pictured you this way, it's talked about all over the world. What, uh, what, what, what do you see as the meaning of the term revolutionary?
3: Well, there's no single simple meaning of the term revolutionary. A revolutionary is a man or a woman who is a lot of things, but basically the revolutionary wants to change the nature of society in a way to promote a world where the needs and interests of the people are responded to. A revolutionary realizes, however, that in order to create a world where human beings can live and and love and be healthy and create, you have to completely revolutionize the entire fabric of society. You have to overturn the economic, where you have a few individuals who are in possession of the vast majority of the wealth in this country that's been produced by the majority of the people, and you have to destroy this political apparatus which, under the guise of revolutionary government, uh, uh, perpetrates the most incredible uh, misery on the masses of the people.
2: One of the interesting things about uh, the term revolutionary is the fact that people, so many people, see it uh, in the context of violence, that uh, revolutionary means violence, violence every day, every minute, at any given time, no matter what the circumstances. Uh, how do you view this, this, this in the context of, of violence?
3: Well, of course, that's part and parcel of the same attempt to separate and isolate revolutionaries from uh, uh, the people. Of course, revolution does not mean violence in the sense that that's its defining characteristic. Yet there Uh, are those who see it that way. Well, yeah, and and, uh, that's uh, done in a very conscious manner to mislead people and to uh, 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 lead people to, for instance, equate uh, uh, a progressive socialist revolution with uh, um, fascism. Mm -hmm. during the time that uh, I was out in the streets and speaking throughout California, I found it incredible how many people define socialism or communism as if it were the third right. Uh, Certainly, of course, though, in the history of revolutions, and not only socialist revolutions, but um, uh, bourgeois democratic revolutions uh, also. The American Revolution, for instance, you have had... uh, uh, the occurrence of violence as a means of seizing power from the oppressor. But why? Uh, This is because the oppressors have failed to uh, um, acknowledge the fact that that the people were right, and that the people uh, had the right to control their lives and to control their destinies. And they are the ones who always initiate the violence. If people are serious about moving ahead to create a better society, then of course they uh, should not allow themselves to be deterred simply because uh, a few people at the top who are in possession usually of monopoly on violence uh, decide that they're going to unleash all of their forces of repression to stop them.
4: This is Democracy Now, democracynow.org, the Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today we spend the hour with the legendary activist and scholar Angela Davis, professor emerita at the University of California, Santa Cruz. For more than 4 decades, Davis has been one of the most influential activists and intellectuals in the United States. An icon of the Black liberation movement, Angela Davis's work around issues of gender, race, class, and prisons has influenced critical thought and social movements across several generations. She's a leading advocate for prison abolition, a position informed by her own experience as a prisoner and a fugitive on the FBI's top 10 wanted list more than 4 Years ago. Once caught, she faced the death penalty in California. After being acquitted on all charges, she spent her life fighting to change the criminal justice system. I recently spoke to her in Washington, D.C., just before the midterm elections at Busboys and Poets. I began by asking her about her connection to the late great soul singer Aretha Franklin. The last time. I got a chance to talk to you, Angela. We tracked you down your last morning, I'm sure you appreciated this, in Martha's Vineyard, right? It was in August. It was the day that Aretha Franklin died. So why were we looking for Angela? Because of their connection that hardly gets attention today, but I think says so much about both women. And I wanted to read a quote of Aretha Franklin, who told Jet Magazine in 1970, my daddy says, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, I respect him, of course, but I'm going to stick by my beliefs. Angela Davis must go free. Black people will be free. I've been locked up for disturbing the peace in Detroit, and I know you gotta disturb the peace when you can't get no peace. Jail is hell to be in, I'm going to set her free if there's any justice in our courts, not because I believe in communism, but because she's a black woman and she wants freedom for black people. I have the money, I got it from black people, they've made me financially able to have it, and I want to use it in ways that will help our people. What did that mean to you at the time, Aretha Franklin saying, I want you free?
5: I was in jail at the time, of course, uh, and when I learned about it, it was one of the most moving moments I experienced during that time, because, of course, Aretha had already provided the soundtrack of our lives, you know? (laughs) And... And I was just, you know, so moved and so uplifted that um, that she was willing to pay my bail. But I should tell you, bail hadn't been set at that time. It's, a, it's an interesting story. I was charged with three capital offenses, every single one of which was unbailable. Yeah. And... Um, And so at that time, I had some arguments with people who were organizing who wanted to do a bail movement, and I'm sitting in jail, and I said, but I'm ineligible for bail. What's the point? But they proved me wrong, and and people all over the world signed petitions, and then eventually, interestingly enough, the state of California temporarily abolished the death penalty. Um, And... um, and my lawyers tried their best to get in touch with Aretha, but she was in the Caribbean at the time. The West Indies. And that was a different era. Uh, it, you're used to money, capital flowing with ease over national borders. There was no way that she could get the money to us in time. And so... Um, this white farmer by the name of Roger McAfee, who had a farm in central California, showed up at my lawyer's office and he said, I'm willing to put up my farm. And and the thing is, had I not gotten out at that moment, I wouldn't have gotten out on bail because immediately the Supreme Court ruled that all capital offenses that were previously ineligible for bail would remain ineligible. And so there was this tiny window, and Aretha, by publicly announcing that she was going to pay my bail, made everybody listen. And so I like to think that it was Aretha, you know, who bailed me out,
4: and she did. You know... We have a terrible problem in this country, even with all of the media, with all of the channels. History gets erased so quickly, and I see so many young people here today. And I was wondering if you can tell that history, because each of the moments in your life were a political struggle, to say the least. I mean, we could... And we will go back even further to where you were born, to Birmingham, but since we're talking about this moment, 1969, Governor Ronald Reagan wants you thrown out of UCLA as a professor, as a teacher, because you're a communist and he wants no communist voice there. Is that right?
5: Yeah. (laughs) And, you know... I never expected to be the center of attention um, in that way. Um, I just wanted to teach philosophy. And um, probably had anyone told me that I would be fired by Ronald Reagan and and that uh, this um, huge uproar all over the country, Um, about the fact that a communist was teaching at UCLA. Uh, I mean, I thought the McCarthy era was over. You know? Uh, Because there was a period where if you were a communist, you you were not able to teach, you were not able to make movies. Um, You all know about the McCarthy era, right? Uh, Okay. Um, I always say, even if you don't have actual memory, you can have historical memory. So this should be a part of our historical memory. Um, But, um, yeah, uh, Ronald Reagan, (laughs) my God. You know, it's so interesting that at these moments when people like Ronald Reagan were elected, when people like Richard Nixon, we never expected that it could possibly be any worse. George W. Bush, I mean, the current occupant of of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue um, makes um, George Bush look a lot better than he looked at the time. And that's weird. Um,
4: But before we go there, um, (laughs) 1970, You're fighting as you fight today, more than 40 years later, um, against the prison industrial complex to free the Soldad brothers, and there's a shootout in the Marin courthouse, and that's what led to your charge, your charges. Today Washington State Supreme Court overturned the death penalty in Washington State, making it the 20th state. Your experience, and I think a lot of young people may not realize this, comes out also of your own experience in jail and prison. You faced three death penalties, three death sentences.
5: Yeah. <laughs> you know, Amy is a really good interviewer. You know, <laughs> um yeah 19, 1969, i was fired from u c l a and um um that was a pretty difficult year i got i got um literally hundreds of death threats i had to be um ushered from Classroom to classroom by the UCLA campus police. They had to um, start my car up to make sure there wasn't a bomb planted. Um, And they ushered me to the edge of campus because they wanted to guarantee that I was not killed on the campus. I mean, that that was really their role. And I say this because uh, it it meant that I had to have um, security um, 24 hours um, and I had to have someone move into my apartment with me because I I lived alone at that time I had to have someone I had to have armed security uh, uh, 24 hours a day and I had um, I purchased a couple of guns that were used by the people who were doing security for me uh, uh, you know particularly when I was speaking I should say that around the same time we learned about the case of the Soledad brothers George Jackson John cliched free Fle- uh, of Drumgo and began to do organizing in Southern California. There was a committee in Northern California to free the Soledad brothers. We created a committee in Southern California. And um, uh, George's younger brother, Jonathan, uh, who who was an amazing, uh, really beautiful uh, young man who uh, was an incredible writer, Uh, he wrote poetry. He was um, also deeply dedicated to his brother. Uh, And I give you all of this information because at one point, uh, Jonathan, who had been doing security for me, took uh, those guns that I had uh, bought for my security and went into the Marin County Courthouse uh, and, we're still not exactly certain what the plans were, but it seemed that uh, that he was going to um, call for the freedom of his his brother and, and the Soledad brothers. Uh, George was in San Quentin at the time. They had been moved to San Quentin. And there was a trial happening in the Marin County courthouse that involved a number of San Quentin prisoners Jonathan went into uh, the courtroom um, and brought the judge out with some of the jurors into a waiting van Um, and then as we discovered during my trial it was the San Quentin guards who opened fire who were responsible for the death of the judge and um, uh, the other prisoners, and Jonathan, and um, I mean, it was a, it was it was horrendous. It was it was really horrendous. We, I can remember we we examined uh, some of the San Quentin guards during my trial and asked what their policy was with respect to escapes. And they said their policy was to prevent escapes at all costs. And so we said, well, if it means the death of one person or 20 persons, does that still hold true? And he said, yes. If it it meant the death of one child or 20 children, he said, yes. Uh, um, So... Anyway, I I was charged with murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy because the the guns were registered in my name.
4: And you had a major decision to make at that time, and you decided to go underground. Well,
5: I wasn't going to turn myself in, you know? I mean, we, all, we, we were all very much aware of what had happened to little Bobby Hutton, an 18-year-old member of the Black Panther Party, when he tried to surrender to police and was killed. And it was really interesting, an, an interview, um, or rather, a a, um, um, a study was done, a poll was taken of people in Los Angeles, in black communities, uh, and the question was whether they thought that uh, I uh, was uh, doing the right thing by leaving. And it was like 90% said yes because they knew the Los Angeles Police Department and they knew how many people had been killed by the police department. So, you know, I, I ne- it never even crossed my mind to um, turn myself in at that time. I was thinking that that, you know, maybe, maybe at a more auspicious moment, you know, maybe if, if organizing were done, and, I mean, I didn't get to do that because the FBI caught up with me, and, and I was actually captured by the FBI, um, which was another story, but... Uh. In New York. Yeah, I was in New York, uh. Well, I was actually running from the FBI because, (laughs) you know, people have this romantic idea about what it means to be underground, Uh, but, you know, in a sense, I was almost relieved because every time I saw a white man in a suit, I assumed it was the FBI, (laughs) and if I had stayed underground any longer, I probably would have had a heart attack, so... (laughs)
4: It's almost exactly 48 years ago, 1970, it was October that you that they got you, right? And put you at Bedford Women's Prison. Is that right? Um, One of the places you were held downtown in the village in New York City? Yeah, it was
5: a women's house with detention in Greenwich Village, yeah. Yeah, they, they took me... First, they took me to the FBI's office. Uh, I mean, they can they they um well i'm having to go back in my memory forty eight years uh and I remember being on the elevator and knowing that they had had found us i was um I was traveling with um a man by the um who was um actually really amazing uh um, and he um he, he ended up being arrested, David Poindexter, and uh, he finally beat the case. But I remember, as we were going up to the hotel room and I remember thinking that this is it. I could sense that it was gonna happen. And as soon as we got up to the floor, uh, they grabbed me, they grabbed him, they snatched. I had a wig because I was in disguise. They snatched my wig off. and. <laughs> And, um, only time I've ever worn a wig in my life. <laughs> um, and my brother, my brother saw, um, my brother saw a picture or something, and he said, that's not my sister. Uh, but they kept asking me, are you Angela Davis? Uh, and you know, I learned when I was a very young child not to talk to the FBI. You do not say anything to the FBI. Um, I learned when I was five years old, when my parents' friends who were communists were underground and the FBI would always uh, try to get information from us. And I learned not to say a word to the FBI. So the only thing I did say to them eventually was that I want my phone call. Um, But yeah, yeah, that was a pretty dramatic moment. yeah.
4: So you're sitting in jail. They are going to fight for you to be extradited to California. You were fighting that, and then they just put you in a van and started moving you west?
5: Well, I was in jail for, let's see, I was arrested on October 13th. And I was in jail until um, November. Uh, so, there are lots of stories that happened at the Women's House of Detention, uh, really important uh, stories, because uh, I think I learned there. It was the only time I was ever in general population because my lawyers fought for me to be uh, removed from solitary confinement. So, I did have contact with the women there. And we did do, we did as a matter of fact, we did we we did organizing around bail and it's so interesting that 50 years later 50 years later that remains the issue and so we um there were people on the outside and it was great that the jail was in Greenwich village because people could just gather outside and you could talk to them out of the windows and so um and I, I mentioned this in my autobiography, that when I was in high school, I, was, I went to high school in Greenwich Village, and I remember going walking by that jail and hearing the disembodied voices and, and not really knowing how to respond. And then it turns out later, I'm the disembodied, disembodied voices calling out to people to contact an attorney. Or we did a lot of organizing in that way and we were able to organize the women inside so that there would be collective decisions regarding who got out on bail after the money was raised by uh, people in the community. Yeah. It was really a, a, quite an amazing experience. I, I learned a lot from, the more I think about it, the more I realize how that experience really shaped me. Um, you know, Later I started to do yoga in jail I'd never heard of yoga. I mean, there weren't even any yoga mats at that time. There was no such thing as a yoga industry, but um, I um, developed a yoga practice uh, when I was there. I learned, I learned a lot from the women. I learned about the need for self-care and yeah.
4: Vegetarianism?
5: Oh yeah, I became a vegetarian. Not because I wanted to at that time. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, I'm still, I'm vegan now, so this is a conscious decision. That was not a conscious decision. That was because the meat had uh, maggots in it and was so bad that um, that I, I, I told them I did not eat meat. And um, I had no idea that once I got out and I tried to go back to eating meat, it wasn't going to work. So, uh, And then eventually, of course, I learned about... Uh, you know, all of the reasons why we should be engaging in conscious eating and and, and, and not be participating in the inflicting of, of violence and, 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 you know, for the sole purpose of producing profit.
4: The legendary activist and scholar Dr. Angela Davis will return with her in a moment to talk about prison guards killing George Jackson in 1971 at San Quentin. We'll also talk to her about the prison abolition movement and more. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we return to my conversation with Angela Davis. I spoke with her in October at Bus Boys and Poets, a cultural hub and restaurant in Washington, D.C. I just was at San Quentin a few weeks ago. Um, One of our fellows at Democracy Now, she worked at the San Quentin News, and we went into San Quentin, and the first thing the prisoners showed us as we walked in the prison, they pointed and said, this is where George Jackson was gunned down. The first thing they showed us. This was agonizing for you.
5: Yeah. um, August 21st, 1971. George was um, was killed by by San Quentin guards, uh, and um, it, it was during that period there was so much going on uh, that it was uh, we could hardly find the time to mourn and to grieve because you know something else would happen. Uh, yeah, Jonathan had been killed almost exactly a year before that. Uh, uh, that period was so compressed in, 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 in so many ways, and I'll never forget when my um, attorney, Howard Moore, and um, my attorney, Margaret Burnham, came to visit me. Because I was, at that particular time, I was back in solitary confinement, because I had been
4: extradited to California. Mm-hmm and um, and you chose to have black attorneys which is a very important statement well yeah
5: why not i mean why the thing is there were so many political prisoners during that period and um you know there were there were really good attorneys um consular was amazing right um but but there were also black attorneys who were committed, who had a history um, in in civil rights activism, like Howard Moore, um, Margaret Burnham, who is my closest friend in the world, um, and we always say that we've known each other since before we were born, uh, because our mothers were pregnant together, and our mothers were best friends, and she was the first person to uh, show up at the jail, uh, and she stayed with me from. She's the, the the only attorney who attorney who was with me from the very beginning, until until the um, acquittal happened, uh, uh, which meant that she had to bring her son, um, her son who had cerebral palsy and you know that. Uh, You know, posed a whole number of challenges. Uh, She moved with him to California. I will never, you know, forget uh, um, Margaret's. Margaret's amazing. (laughs) You all should know her. As a matter of fact, she's had about five different careers. she was a civil rights attorney. She was my attorney for two years. She was a judge in Boston. She ran an international law practice. She helped to write the Constitution of South Africa. And um, now she has a project. Then she became a, she became a, um, um, a legal scholar and teaches law at Northeastern. She has this program that is called Civil Rights and Restorative Justice where she investigates cases of uh, black people in the South uh, who were killed or who had their property taken away from them, who were lynched uh, in Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi, Louisiana. So yeah, yeah. So I I had three black attorneys And Your third
4: lawyer was? Leo Branton. And he's the one who, in court, turned to the jury and said, be black for a minute, right? Because the idea that you went underground, he said, you'll automatically think that means she's guilty. But change the color of your skin and don't worry, you can go back in just a minute. And think what you would do, do, right? Think what you would do if you were black in America at that time, and the police were going after you and the FBI.
5: See, Leo's first love was drama. He studied drama. And, and, and so he, he had this sense of, you know, how to capture the attention of, of, of the jury. And many, many years later, we were at Harvard. Charles Ogletree uh, did um, an event in which he invited me and my siblings and, and the um, attorneys. And Leo remembered, word for word, the closing argument And he stood up in front of these students, this was in in the 1990s, and gave the closing
4: argument again. Is it true that at one point they sat a woman, a good friend of yours next to you, to show the unreliability of eyewitness accounts? Yeah, uh,
5: my friend Kendra Alexander, uh, with whom I was active in the Communist Party and a number of other organizations. Uh, she, uh, she did legal work uh, throughout the trial, as did her husband Franklin and my sister. Um, and so she sat at the, at the table with us, uh, and this witness was um, poised to identify me. Um, and he identified Kendra. They said, and is she that in this is, room yes, today? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there were, there were all of these, I guess, Perry Mason moments in the trial that were
4: <laughs> And you were released on bail, but then describe the moment, the moment of the jury coming back in. Your family, your whole family was there, but your mother was too nervous to come into the courtroom.
5: Yeah, my mother didn't want to come in, and, and Margaret, uh, who had known my mother since she was born, you know, said, um, Sally, uh, we all learned to call the parents by the first names. That was kind of like a communist, uh, you know, <laughs> so she, Margaret said, Sally, you can't stay up. You have to come in, and, and she came in. Um, but what was what was interesting was that Margaret was the one who was so totally composed, and she totally had it together. You know, she was the attorney. But as soon as the jury walked into the courtroom, she lost it. She like her hands went up <laughs> and, um, But um, yeah, the jury announced the verdict, and um, Franklin sobbed. Out loud, you heard this this loud voice of this man crying. Franklin was uh, another close comrade friend uh, who did uh, organizing
4: around the case. Uh, Yeah, yeah. One, two, three. The charges were read. Yeah. And you were found not guilty on all three charges. Yeah. You walked out into the sunlight and the next chapter of your life began. Well, you know, we
5: had a party that night. Uh, and champagne, it was great. Uh, and then, the, you know, the jurors wanted to get together, so I, I uh, got to... Um, <laughs> So I actually became really good friends with the four person of the jury, whose name was Mary Timothy. Um, but then, the very next day, we got together and decided that something had to be done to keep the whole um, you know, apparatus. Uh, together that was responsible for the for organizing around the demand for my freedom. Um, because in, initially, it was the National United Committee to free Angela Davis, and during the time I was in jail, I, I, I looked at all of the women who were there, who had no resources, uh, who had no access to attorneys, and I said, this can't just be about me. Uh, and and so, so the name was changed, the National United Committee to Free Angela Davis and all political prisoners. And so the very next day, after we had partied all night, we had a meeting to figure out how we could begin to move to a new phase, how we could um, create a new organization. We created an organization called the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Some of the first cases were the Attica brothers because the Attica rebellion had happened in 1971, September, right after uh, George was um, was killed. Uh, There there was the case of Reverend Ben Chavis and the Wilmington 10. there, 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 there were the the there were so many cases. Um, uh, Lolita Lebrón, who was still in prison at the time, so we immediately the Puerto Rican independence actors. Yeah, so we immediately began to do that work, uh, and I mention it because, you know, oftentimes um, we don't get to see uh, the 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 history, the trajectory that makes it possible to engage in certain kinds of political actions um, 20, 30, 40 years later. Um, and, and so I think that uh, we were helping to lay the foundation uh, for movements against racist police violence today. Uh, as a matter of fact, we we had um, a, um, a caucus within the organization that was very specifically concerned with stopping police violence.
4: 47 years ago, George Jackson was killed, and on the 47th anniversary this year, 2018, the prison strike lasted three weeks from... The gunning down of George Jackson to the Attica uprising and prisons, prisoners around the country once again in this year rose up at great, you know, possibility of retribution against them. Went on hunger strike. Went on work strikes. Yeah, that national prisoner
5: strike was so important. We we often don't recognize the degree to which the historical memory that I was talking about before um, is, plays such an important part in the lives of prisoners. Prisoners, even young, um, young people who have been recently um, arrested and, and sentenced to prison are politically educated they learn from the old timers about, you know, all of the events that have happened over the years, the significance of, of, of George Jackson, the, the um, you know, all of the um, campaigns that took place in the 1960s and the 1970s. They actually do a much better job than people in the free world of preserving history. And, and of course, um, the fact that we we now can uh, openly call for the abolition of imprisonment as the existing mode of punishment and the abolition of policing as the major form of security in our worlds. Uh, We owe that to people who stood up uh, uh, many decades ago. And I'll never forget that.
4: And just before we move forward, I wanted to go back eight years to 1963 because this is also another anniversary and it's close to your home because it's where you were born, September fifteenth, nineteen 1963, the blowing up of the Birmingham Church in Alabama, a church you knew well. You were 19 years old. Where were you on that... Sunday um, when that church, that icon within uh, in Birmingham, was blown up and killed the four little girls
5: I was in France. I was um, spending my junior year um, studying in paris and um, and when I learned about the Bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Um, I was there, and um, you know, in those days, we the, the technology of communication was not what it is today. You couldn't just, uh, you know, text somebody. Or uh, I mean, I I I called my family maybe once every two months when I was there, and so that was a phone call. I still vividly. Uh, remember and um, my my mother was very good friends with um, the mother of uh, Carol Robinson and uh, and as I've said many times almost all of the girls were close to our family you know um, Cynthia lived um, right two doors away from us and Carol was my sister's uh, best friend Um, and, and she had um, taken Carol's mother, whose name was Alpha Bliss Robertson. And if any of you have seen Spike Lee's film, Four Little Girls, she's interviewed uh, there. That's, that was one of his best films, I think. Mm, it, was it was really so good. good. Uh, and uh, And so my Alpha, Bliss Robinson called my mother and said, "Would you please take me to the church uh, because I have to pick up Carol? There's, you know, something has happened there." And so my mother was like, um, um, there when uh, she discovered, uh, you know, what had happened uh, to her child. Um, we we could talk about that. Incident, but I think it's also important to realize that that wasn't the first time a church had been bombed. You know, if, often people who are not from the South don't realize that that was a routine expression of racist terror. It happened all the time. Um,
4: did you, didn't you did you grow up on Dynamite Hill? Didn't yeah, where I,
5: where I lived was called Dynamite Hill because so many houses were were a bomb. The church I attended, which was a couple of blocks from the house, was burned when I was 11 years old because we had an interracial discussion group going on there. So, you know, I've said many times that, you know, there's all of this discussion about terror and the threat of terror and the Islamophobia that goes along with it, but there's never any acknowledgement of the extent to which Terror shaped the country, and especially the
4: South. And no one did anything about it. So have you, have you ever had a discussion with another woman who was born in Birmingham, the former National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice? N- not the Rice? one you're talking about. Uh, no, I, you know... Two All slightly different trajectories of life that came out of Birmingham: Condoleezza and Angela. Yeah. <laughs> All kinds of people
5: are from Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but you know, I, I I I actually did read her autobiography a while ago, and I realized that. Um, there was a major difference
4: <laughs> i I didn't read her autobiography, and I had already figured that out. but you see,
5: one of the things I learned growing up in Birmingham was to really treasure community um, and um, I, I I learned that in An injury to one is an injury to all, and I, you know, got a sense of, um, you know, I'm actually really glad I grew up in that segregated world because it taught me about the possibilities of community, and you know, I can remember our 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 teachers when the, the the white men from the board of education would come to school and call the teachers by their first name because that was one of the ways in which they gave expression to their racism and 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 so the teachers would stand up and fight back and end up losing their jobs just from speaking back to you know a white um, board of education representative and so i felt this closeness there now the the the, the, re- the reason i make this point is because In Condoleezza Rice's autobiography, she points out that she was reared uh, to think of herself as as someone who had to stand out, who had to be better than anyone else, uh, who had to, who had to, if we're running a race, she always had to be five miles ahead. And... Well, you know, they, uh, we all learn that if you're black, you have to be ten times better than white people. So
4: you didn't just face but one death sentence, be, you faced three. Right? <laughs> no, but Count Lisa Rice
5: wanted to be ten times better than all black people, too. So. And, I get, and I don't think she grew up with that sense that, um, of the power of, of community. She grew up with a sense of the, the need to stand out as an individual. And I think that's the fundamental difference.
0: I hope you found this Black Panther series inspiring, empowering, and it sparked a fire for you on your own journey and intrigued you to find out more of the lives of the featured brothers and sisters as well if you want to make sure that you are always the first to hear fresh new Reggae Uprising podcast episodes, if you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you haven't already shared it with your loved ones, if it inspires you and it brings you joy every single Wednesday, please share it with the people that you love. Please share these high vibrations. If you would like to connect with me, please get in touch via the contact page on daniel.co.uk. So that's D-A-N-I-E-A-L.co.uk. You might want to connect in regards to featuring on an up-and-coming Reggae Uprising podcast, you might want to recommend somebody, you might want to get involved in some mu- musical works or you might have a project that you're thinking, yes, Danielle is the woman that I need to get involved with this project. So please feel free to get in touch with me. Also, like I said earlier, you can find all of my musical works and performance dates as well as all Reggae Uprising podcast episodes right? I'm going to leave you for now until next Wednesday. But before I do, I'm going to leave you with some high vibrations. I'm going to leave you with those high vibrations of Everton Blender. Lift up your head. As always, blessed love.
6: for better and we're not gonna stop till the battle is won and we get justice cause if you lose your stand anyone will try to push you over Come